0: Okay, our scripture um, this evening, uh, this morning, um, is pretty easy to find. Um, it's at the very end of the book in Revelation twenty-one. All right. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give him to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, and three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Then Stephen twenty-two. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it, gives it its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations shall be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the book of, Lamb's Book of Life." OK, so this is the last sermon in a 14-week series uh, that started in my second week here. Um, I feel like it's a good way to, this, this passage is a good way to sum up the whole thing. Um, the entire plot of the whole Bible is coming to a close here. So I'll try to not only talk about what this passage is saying, but also summarize how we got here. But honestly, I've struggled a bit with how to sum up the whole story of the Bible in a way that's easy to remember. Um, I mean, you can tell it because it's taken me 14 weeks. Um, so as a shortcut, I'm thinking I'll just try to draw your attention to three important themes that I see throughout the Bible that are finding their fulfillment in this passage and made some reference to what we've said in the, uh, in the previous weeks. Those, those themes are the presence of God, the justice of God, and our allegiance to God. First, the presence of God. In our first week, we saw that God created the earth, and there was nothing that kept him from being present in his creation. In fact, the earth needed God's presence in order to continue to exist. He was the creating force that actually allows it to run. But humans sinned, and that caused them to be exiled away from God. But since all of creation was made to exist in God's presence, that meant that if God was absent, everything would fall apart. And it really did. All the chaos and evil and non-existence seeped into the world because the good, orderly, and creative God was not there with it. Humans recognized that, so they made a tower in Babel that was meant to bring God down to them so that they could have God's presence. Instead, God scattered them over the whole earth. It seemed hopeless, but God promised that through one particular family, um, through one particular family, he would restore his presence back to the earth, and that everything would go back to the way it was supposed to be. This family was called Israel. And God gave Israel a law that was meant to to tell them how to act since God was with them so that they would be able to bless the world with God's presence. They were terrible at following that law. But nevertheless, God really was with them. And God's presence really did spread through them. Where once God had walked with humans in the garden, now God was present with them in a temple, living in a house three doors down from any average of Israelite. And he gave Israel a king that was meant, supposed to represent God's rule on earth. But slowly, Israel's sin piled up, and his kings did nothing to stop it. So that meant that, just like in the garden, God's people would be exiled from him, and he would no longer be present. Somehow, God said, though, even this exile would be used to spread God's presence. And Israel wouldn't just be suffering for her own sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And that meant that when the exile was over, all sins would be forgiven, and God would return to the earth and everything would be set right. In the meantime, the Israelites prayed that God would tear open the heavens and come down, invading the earth with his righteous rule. Even though, God had made it so that, even though sin had made it so that God couldn't be present, now God was present with them anyway, jumping it down into our mess to save us. Jesus was God's beloved son. That was, supposed, that was everything that Israel was supposed to be. Just like Israel is meant to bring God's presence to the earth and bless them with it, Jesus was himself, Emmanuel, God with us. Just like Israel was supposed to suffer in the exile, Jesus suffered exile on the cross. And by his suffering, the whole world was forgiven which meant that God could once again be present with his people. He promised, surely I am with you always. And he sent his promised Holy Spirit to gather together the whole earth, to reverse the curse of Babel, and to bring God's presence to everyone. In that way, we ourselves are almost like temples of God, because God literally lives within us. Here in Revelation 21, John is describing how the New Jerusalem is coming to earth. Here, the just and righteous reign of God is fully realized, and the world is going back to its good intention. God is living with his people, and there no longer stands anything that stands in the way of it. Except it's even better than it was before. Where before humans lived in a garden, now they live in an eternal city. Where before there was one man and one woman in the family of God, in this passage, there's billions of them. All the peace and justice of God's presence is here, except it's even better because there's so many of our brothers and sisters here to enjoy it. The kingdom of heaven made its its first foray to earth when Jesus conquered the death and evil of this world through the cross. And in this passage, the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of heaven because heaven came down to earth. The angel says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain forever, for the former things have passed away. The city doesn't even need a temple, because it's not like God needs to live in a house to be near his people, because there's no constraints on the presence of God anymore. And since God is present with his people, the world can function the way it was supposed to from the beginning. Everything terrible is coming untrue. Because nothing terrible can happen when God is with us. That's the vision that we as Christians have for a world that's made right. That's what the world looks like when there's nothing that keeps God away from being fully present with us. What's amazing is that we have the key to making our world look a lot more like that world. Jesus said when he left this world, surely I am with you always, and he gave us the presence of God in his Holy Spirit. God really is with us in the church. What that means is we can build communities that give a foretaste of God's eternal kingdom. If we're doing our job, we can show the world that God really is with us. And they can see that the presence of God really changes things. God is with us, and so that means that we are meant to go out into the world and bring God's presence to everyone. The world desperately needs God's presence. It's the one thing that can save them, and we've got it. All we have to do is live our lives, do whatever we think that God is calling us to do, and God will be saving the world through us. It doesn't take much skill of our own, because it has nothing to do with us, but has everything to do with the presence of God spreading through us. All it takes is the bravery to do what God calls us to do. Second, the justice of God. As we've seen, Part of the problem of losing the presence of God is that everything falls apart. All of creation, including humans, were meant to live in the presence of God, which means that if God is absent because of their sin, then things go horribly wrong. God is the ultimate meaning of the universe, and so if God isn't there, then the world seems meaningless. God is the creator of everything, and he holds the universe by his own power. But if we have been exiled from God, then the creative force that keeps the world going isn't fully here with us. It's not hard, then, to see what it looks like for the world to be falling apart, because we see it every day. We see it when people's wages are stolen, or when an unjust ruling is made, or when violence is committed, or when people fail to look out for the interests of others and turn in on themselves. There is basically a law that injustice lives by, which is basically there is no good or bad. There is only strong or weak. The strong take what they can, and the weak try to find someone weaker to steal from. In the Bible, this is called the law of sin and death, because it naturally leads toward destruction. Humans see that without God's presence, the world really does look meaningless, and so all that's left is the law of sin and death. Get what you can. They inevitably follow this law without God's presence. They're slaves to it, and they can't help it. But from very early, the Bible says that God will one day defeat this evil law. In the Old Testament, God gave his people the Torah, as a way to show them how to live in accordance with wisdom rather than the law of sin and death. The Torah promised that if you followed it, you would be able to live and not destroy yourself. Other nations were oppressing them, so God gave them a king who was meant to restrain the evil powers and subject them to the reign of God. The king was meant to bring the justice of God to the world. But Israel didn't follow the Torah and continued to follow the law of sin and death. And her teens didn't restrain the evil of the world, but actively participated in it and actually made things worse. The injustice that reigned over the world seems stronger than ever. It wasn't that God's people would be on the side of justice, good, and meaning, while the rest of the world followed the law of sin and death. No, the rot was coming from within. So God sent his people away into exile in hopes that they would be purified by suffering and that God's reign of peace and justice would come to the world in a new heavens and a new earth. But they really weren't purified by their suffering. So God came into the world to purify them himself as a human being. As the promised king who would restrain the evil of the world, Jesus showed a new way to be human. He showed that self-sacrifice is what it means to be human, that you exist to give yourself away. And having given yourself away, you become more yourself. If you lose yourself, you find yourself. But just telling us that that would never have fixed anything, because we'll just still follow the law of sin and death. It's too strong, and we can't resist it. So God brought judgment and condemned the law of sin and death and all the demonic powers and evil political leaders that uphold it by allowing them to crucify him on the cross. They spoke the only language they know which is that there's only no right or wrong, but only strong and weak. And that no one ever does anything for other people's sake, but only for themselves. And they killed him violently on the cross with no regard to the suffering they caused. But in doing that, they destroyed themselves. Because Jesus, out of pure love, gave himself up for the world, that hated him and offered him nothing, just so that, and so he could, disarmed the law, logic of the law of sin and death. The world can't just be a power play if the world's God gave himself up in self-giving love and emptied himself of all power. And if the law of sin and death has been defeated, and all the demonic powers and unjust governments and petty criminals and evil of this world along with it, then we have been set free to live according to God's law, which actually leads to life and meaning. Christ was raised from the dead, and so he was the first fruits of the new heavens and the new earth, it was the very first appearance of God's eternal reign of peace and justice. And since the first glimpse of the new world was here, God infused his people with the power of the new heavens and the new earth so that they could actually live according to the law of life. God created a new kingdom of justice, and he created a new people, the church which lives by the law of that kingdom. And if we were reading the whole book of Revelation, We would see that there's another kingdom, though, that lives parallel to God's kingdom. In Revelation 17, John describes how an angel showed him the judgment of Babylon. Some people are citizens of this new Jerusalem, and some people are citizens of Babylon. If you remember, like two months ago, we talked about how Babylon came to Israel and deported them out of the land that God gave them. After that, they came to symbolize every evil that's wrong with the world. They were the kingdom that lives by nothing other than the law of sin and death, the ones that thrive in injustice and destroying God's good order. They are the chaotic and demonic forces that oppressed the people of God. And the Israelites wanted so badly for God to come and judge the forces of like Babylon and liberate them from their oppression. In chapter 21, John is clearly making a parallel between the New Jerusalem and Babylon from chapter 17. When he's describing Babylon, John says that an angel with bowls came and spoke to him and said, Come, I will show you the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. When he's describing the new Jerusalem, John says that an angel with bowls came to him and spoke to him and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. When he's describing the prostitute Babylon, he says that she is arrayed in purple and scarlet, star- and with gold, jewels, and pearls. Meanwhile, the Bride Jerusalem is clothed with the glory of God, whose radiance is like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The prostitute Babylon has a name printed on her forehead that says, Babylon the Great, Mother of Prostitutes and of the Earth's Abominations. The Bride Jerusalem has the name of God printed on its citizens. Babylon is a place of demons. The New Jerusalem is the dwelling place of God. You get the point. John is making a direct comparison between Babylon and Jerusalem. One kingdom is evil and will be judged by God with overwhelming wrath. One kingdom is the kingdom of heaven and comes to earth and forever has the presence of God in all its blessings. In the end, God says, acting justly and righteously and having your allegiance to the kingdom, the new Jerusalem will pay off because Babylon and those that oppose the goodness and truth will be destroyed. An angel says in chapter 18, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. In other words, Babylon has reached its tendrils into every city and every town, and it is far too easy to be seduced by her. Anything which gets its power from raw strength and not from self-giving love is an agent of Babylon. Those that, that just take what they want and act selfishly their entire lives live in direct contradiction of the law of the kingdom of heaven, and so they simply wouldn't fit in there. As a citizen of the United States, I am bound to follow its laws. Similarly, if you lived according to the laws of the kingdom of this world, you will become a citizen citizen of the kingdom of this world. Those that cheat their neighbors and nihilistic terrorists and corrupt politicians have no place in the kingdom of heaven because they live according to the law of this world, which is that there's no right and wrong, there's only strong and weak. In the end, the natural result of, of that is that they will fall along with Babylon, and they will experience eternal death because they have destroyed themselves. And third, if you can have the glorious presence of God and you can see the justice of God if you give your allegiance to God. Notice the two sins that the angel points out as the hallmark sins of the prostitute of Babylon. He says, for all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from her luxurious living. The two sins the angel highlights above all others is sexual immorality and the unjust use of money. And these are two things that I think our society has a special hard time with. Our culture, in large part, has bought into the lie that the part of our lives that really matters is in our minds. So what we do with our body doesn't really matter. We can have sex with whoever we want. We can gratify whatever desires we want to. Because ultimately, all that matters is that we have a good time, and if we don't directly hurt anyone, what's the harm? This is an incredibly arrogant way of looking at yourself. It says that really you are totally in control of who you become, and nothing your body does could ever really affect you. It ignores the incredible power of sex to shape who you are. Because this idea totally subjects your sexuality to the law of sin and death it tells you that a significant part of you is only meant for your own pleasure and to gratify your own selfish desires. That is the definition of the law of sin and death. But the law of Christ's kingdom is that every part of you is meant to be given up in love to another person. And in giving yourself up, you become more truly yourself. Sex is a good gift of God that is meant to be given up in love to your spouse. And outside of this self-giving love, it is incredibly dangerous because of its power to warp you. And now for a more comfortable topic, the angel also highlights the unjust use of money as a hallmark of the sins of Babylon. I am a big fan of capitalism. I don't think that the global abject poverty rate would have ever fallen to 8% from nearly 100% worldwide if not for market capitalism. However, one thing we tend not to think about is the spiritual effects that capitalism can have. Capitalism is successful because it incentivizes an ethical principle that's called egoistic altruism. In other words, capitalism in theory tells you that if you work really hard for your own selfish gain, it actually will also help someone else a lot. If you work your whole life to invent something really amazing product that makes everyone's lives easier, you'll also be made fabulously rich. Adam Smith, who literally wrote the book on capitalism, said, it's not by the generosity of the butcher that he gives you meat. Capitalism basically uses your selfish desires and turns them into something that benefits everyone. It's kind of genius. The problem is that it's using your selfish desires. Even if you aren't a selfish person, if you really want to succeed, a lot of times you have to act like a selfish person. And if you do that, it can actually turn you into a selfish person. Even if you don't live according to the law of sin and death, sometimes you have to act like you do. Money has an incredible power to turn us selfish, especially if we live in a system that incentivizes being selfish. And if you use your money purely for yourself, you are living in the kingdom of Babylon, not in the kingdom of God. Money is a good gift of God, but is meant to be given up in love to others, just like all good gifts of God. That's the law of the kingdom of Christ. And as relatively wealthy people, we have to do a lot to make sure that that wealth doesn't turn us selfish by giving it away. Notice that these two sins, sexual immorality and unjust use of money, are perhaps the two most seductive sins out there. They can cause you to do things that you know really aren't in your best interest. They can cause you to say something like, I know this is wrong, but I'll do it anyway. As we've seen throughout the Bible, though, Babylon really is seductive. She can sound reasonable sometimes. She might ask you for one small step toward her to make your life a bit easier. Cut a corner here and there, no big deal. And then you wake up one day and find that you have become a slave to her. She follows the law of sin and death. And if you join her, you will destroy yourself. We saw that when we remembered the story of the wise men, when the Jewish leaders recognized that following God's Messiah, and the kingdom of heaven meant war with Rome. At that point, they were afraid of Rome, so they decided from the beginning of the Messiah's life to kill him. They really wanted to keep the peace, because Rome is scary, and they're brutal when they fight against you. But by taking their side just for a moment, they took the side of Babylon. Your attentions might even seem pretty good when you, take, when you decide to compromise to Babylon. But every step toward you take toward her is followed by a demand for another, and then another, and then another. And one day, you find yourself totally allied with Babylon when she inevitably falls. In other words, don't take the easy way out. There are always dangers that lie beyond what that you might not be able to see. Betraying God and the heavenly Jerusalem, the only master worth serving, is always foolish. But it's hard to be wise enough to li- not to live as a citizen of Babylon but as a citizen of God's new Jerusalem. We saw in John's account that the crucifixion actually calls us to give our allegiance to the king that was crucified on the cross. What an incredibly odd thing to do, to see the might of the Roman Empire and the social power of the Jewish leaders and to say that the one who's really in charge in the crucifixion is the one on the cross. In other words, the world, whole world is totally wrong about what power really looks like. They really drank the Kool-Aid of the law of sin and death. And the world fully aligned itself with the prostitute of Babylon, to the point that when God's power came to the world and it spreads itself fully on the cross, no one really recognized it. That's how hard it is to give our allegiance to God's kingdom. And that's how seductive Babylon really is. An angel says in Revelation 18, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins lest you share in her plates. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. He will pay her back, as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup that she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a light measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her." The angel makes a desperate call for us to avoid Babylon. Take a wide berth. Save yourselves. That way lies destruction. It's a matter of life and death. But it takes incredible wisdom and courage to avoid serving Babylon. As modern, rational people, We like to think that we can know the consequences of our own actions. If we do X, then Y will happen. But that's not how spiritual formation works. And I think that you can probably see that in your own life. It's more like, if I do X, then I will become the type of person who does X. And unless something really does change, I will become a habitual X doer. We have to recognize that we are not totally rational people. It's not just that our minds and ideas and thoughts influence our actions. But sometimes things go in the reverse. Sometimes our actions influence our minds. We like to think along lines like, if I act selfishly just this once, then I'll go back to being selfless and it'll be no problem. More and more, I think people are realizing that things don't work that way. Sin warps your brain in ways that you might not imagine. If you act selfishly, then your brain will see you act selfishly. It'll rationalize what you just did, and then, your brain, then which will make it easier to do it again. The same goes for every other way that you can compromise to Babylon. If I cheat my worker out of just a little bit of money, I can get, back, I can get by and then I'll give it back when the time is right. No, more than likely, the time will never be right. You pro- you're probably not going to pay them back, and you'll probably do something even worse in the future. You'll rationalize it away, and things will only get worse. Don't be arrogant enough to think that you can make small concessions to the prostitute of Babylon. More than likely, she'll ask for more. On the other hand, the law of the kingdom of heaven is giving yourself up in love to one another. And when you live according to that law, then you have made your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. You become the kind of person who lives in peace and justice in the presence of God in the new Jerusalem. And the more you act like a citizen of God's kingdom, the more you'll you'll see yourself acting like it. And the more you'll rationalise your behavior, which causes you to become more and more the person you're meant to be. The first time you resist temptation to sin is always the hardest. The first time you tithe is always the most painful. The first time you reach out to someone who's lonely is always the most awkward. The first time that you make a major sacrifice for the sake of another person is always the most expensive. After that, it gets a lot easier. The common saying, fake it until you make it, has a lot of truth to it. Psyching yourself out to do the right thing is often a lot harder than just doing the right thing. Your mind can be shaped by doing God's work a lot more than it's shaped by thinking about it. Just like the prostitute of Babylon is seductive, the bride of Christ is seductive too except that the beauty of the bride of Christ is actually real. In fact, everything that is beautiful in the world gets its beauty from this exact image of Revelation 21, the bride of Christ dwelling in the eternal city with her God in peace. Everything that you see as beautiful is only beautiful because it looks something like this one image. The beauty of the prostitute of Babylon and everything it represents is just fake, easy copy of the real thing. The more you serve Babylon, the more you look like it, and the more you become entrenched as a citizen of that city. The same goes for the reverse. The more you serve Jesus, and the more you make him your king, the more you'll look like a citizen of the New Jerusalem. If you want to give your allegiance to God and receive his glorious presence and his perfect justice, just take that first awkward, difficult, imperfect step towards looking like a citizen of his kingdom, whatever that looks like for you. And God will rush alongside you and really make you the person that you're meant to be. And he'll give you a mission to spread his presence through the whole world. Let's pray. Lord, give us strength to give our allegiance to you. Help us to choose life and not death. Lord, we thank you that you saved us from slavery to death and that you have, you have waiting for us an eternal city of peace and justice, beauty and love. Amen.